All right, everyone. We are taking you out to Seattle, Washington tonight. We are talking with Kurt DeBeek and Sejan McFarlane of Songs for Podcasters. They are the co-founders of this company. And as you can imagine, we're going to be talking about music in your podcast. They have announced some interesting partnerships, and I think this is going to open up a world of interesting changes and opportunities for podcasters to get some better access to music within their shows. We will find out more, but Kurt and Sejan, thank you so much for joining us here tonight. Thank for you having for having us. us. First of all, tell us a little bit about Songs for Podcasters, whoever wants to go, let me know, right? Like what the company does and, you know, why you decided to put this platform out there. So Songs for Podcasters is something that we decided to do because the process of finding music in that space can be very confusing and difficult and um, mysterious. And we wanted to remove all of those impediments and make it easier for people to find high quality music to combine with their podcast. And so we decided to create a platform that does that. And it leverages the technology that we developed for our other platform, which is syncfloor.com, which is a sync licensing music marketplace where people can find music for film and TV and advertising and traditional media. And in this case, with songs for podcasters, we're focusing on a very specific sector of media, which is the podcast space. Now, I'm so glad that you brought up the fact that you were doing this for a different form of media and that podcasting is sort of a different animal. What is it about podcasts that makes music licensing so unique? I'd say that the way we looked at podcasting as a, a vertical is that we felt that a lot of the sort of bells and whistles and so on that people had gotten used to, and frankly, were also very difficult in the realm of advertising, film and TV, were things that weren't necessary in the context of podcasting. And the broad set of people who were engaged in pod- podcasting as a form of creative expression and brand narrative and storytelling and so on, that what they really cared about was the quality of music that could lift their narratives and having simple access to it under conditions that were customized with respect to the kinds of questions and terms that they would care about for a podcast. And so we said that instead of having to try to navigate that sort of complex environment for finding great commercial music for your podcast, that's the same as these, this sort of traditional media. Why don't we rethink it and think about it specifically for podcasts, have the workflows be specific to podcasts, have the pricing be specific to podcasts, and have the interface feel really intuitive in terms of the kinds of things that you would expect when you're looking to lift that kind of narrative. We built something special for this segment. Well, is it also, I mean, not just the way that podcasters look for music and try to hunt for the right song for what they're trying to do, but isn't it also the medium itself poses unique challenges that streaming video and broadcast media uh, don't have? That's, that's true. You know, I, I think, you know, where you, you know, if you talk to people as they, they do creative for productions, you know, the, the challenge of you know, using music under conversation is very different from some other types of purposes. So, so there's a difference there in terms of the creative and how you want to think about the creative and how you want to cut the creative. But in addition to that, you know, podcasters hang out in different places. They are interested in different tools for building out what they, they want. And so we've, we felt that it was important to create something that could integrate well into those places and, and to those tools. That said, we see actually some really interesting trends where, you know, as a podcaster, you're starting to have to think about video 
and think about the places that you would distribute video, right? And so, so those things now start to bring some of these things together. So we see some of a, a sort of back and forth in terms of our own learning about how to create the right thing for all those segments based on, you know, entering the podcast world. Specifically, you know, a lot of podcasters think, oh, you know, I'll just grab the latest Taylor Swift song, play a couple of, you know, 10 second, 20 second clip on my show. No big deal. You get a lot of music podcasts that just play the whole song. They think, no worries. No one, you know, no one's going to do anything about it. Or I'll just claim fair use. You even have folks who will take a drop from a commercial song, like from a Taylor Smith, use it as part of their intro. And really that's, that's not allowed, right? I mean, this, that's the creator's intellectual property or somebody owns that, that music and they put it out into the world for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons is to generate revenue from it. If you're using somebody's music, Taylor Swift's, for example, you might get a, a knock on your proverbial door saying, hey, you should take that song down and stop using it. And so put one of the reasons behind or the rationale behind songs for podcasters is to make it easy for podcasters to go and find music because it's not inherently obvious if you're creating a podcast and you want to do things properly and pay people for the art that you're using and combining with your podcast, where do you go? You know, where do you look for it? How do you find it? And and also, is it the quality that you want? Does it have the right feel and vibe for the podcast that you're creating? So Songs for Podcasters is intended to make all of that easy and obvious and simple to go through and transact and properly license the music for your, for your podcast. So now the other piece of this is that you're announcing some new partnerships as well, where you are starting to work with some large labels around the globe. And does that mean we're going to start seeing more commercial music available to podcasters? Yeah, absolutely. Our focus is commercial music. So in general, the partners that we have are all really great high production value labels and publishers that people know and trust to bring great independent music to everyone who's doing a production. And so we continue to expand that remit with partnerships like the one we did with Maven Records in Nigeria for some great Afropop and Azonto that we did with GeoSavin Artist Originals to bring great Southeast Asian music. And we'll continue to do that type of partnership because we think that those who are creating podcasts want really diverse, high quality music to be available to them. We span the globe finding that kind of stuff to bring to our marketplace. So that's great. That gives you a nice variety of sound and gives podcasters a lot of options as far as how they can craft the perfect sound for their show. But, you know, most people who are hearing this right now and, you know, referencing the example I gave before, people who are sampling the Taylor Swift's, the chain smokers, right? Those more well-known, famous U.S. musicians. What's the timeline? What's the chances that those become readily available to podcasters in a legal way. We focused a lot on the the sort of independent sector where you find great artists known as well as up and coming that many people sort of know and love and want to be able to use. And we'll continue to expand that in the coming months. And in terms of the the Taylor Swift example, I think that that will probably take some time, but I'm sure when she listens to this podcast and thinks, how do I get <laughs> my stuff out there to all those, all those podcasters? She'll think, let's, let's go talk to those guys. That's, that's going to be the way to go. I mean, what is the big hurdle to getting the Taylor Swift's of the world to open up their libraries for podcasters to be able to sample their music or even incorporate it into production elements like an intro, like an outro, things like that? 
a variety of hurdles. One of the things that we do with respect to the labels that we have in our index is we focus on what's called one-stop rights, and that's where the rights in the music are all held by one label or distributor or can be represented by one entity. The rights to music can be very complex. As people have heard in the news, Taylor Swift herself has faced the complexity of the legal rights around her music. And so the bigger the artist is, the more likely it is that their rights are held by more than one entity. So clearing it for the purposes of a podcast, it won't make monetary sense. There isn't enough money in that license to make it worthwhile for someone to go out and contact the publisher and the owner of the masters or the multiple owners, depending on what the scenario is. That's a big hurdle, and it's one that we've taken head on by focusing on one stop, largely in the indie sector, so that we can simplify that process. So it's still going to be some time before, you know, I can really throw down a Led Zeppelin track as my intro. Led Zeppelin in particular might be challenging. (laughs) Now, one of the things like, right, you, you start to increase your library. You start to invite these independent artists, podcasters pay for the license. They do everything properly through your website. They start to post their episodes and maybe it's Spotify or maybe they are publishing them to YouTube or other places. And maybe they still get hit with a, an infringement or somebody who's claiming copyright or trademark on the music and not knowing that the person has a legitimate license. How do we get around that? I mean, I know, you know, once they go to claim it, you'll, you'll be able to fill out a form and say, no, no, here's the receipt. Here's my license. I'm good to go. But like, that's a lot of headache after the fact, right? How do we make it so that when I post an episode, I don't have to worry about getting takedown notices from the platforms before I have to defend it. You know, there are levels of protection that you take in order to try to put yourself in the best position possible. And one of the best things you can do is to to get a license from someone who said they are the rights holder and they're representing that they do have the rights to grant you the music for use in your podcast. That won't stop some random or non-random person from raising their hand and saying, hey, wait a minute, I actually helped write that song. People can come out of the woodwork both legitimately and illegitimately, but it's much better to go and and work with a reputable label or publisher who's saying, yeah, we have these rights and we'll stand behind them than to, for example, just start using music and not getting a license at all. I'll add that in sort of the traditional sphere, you know, film, TV, advertising, there's a process by which having secured the sync license when you take that production and you're about to distribute it, that you sort of register the usages that you have and the licenses that you have, partly so that certain kinds of royalties are paid with respect to public performance and things like that. Uh, companies have started to do the infrastructure for pre-registering you know, registering against things like, for instance, YouTube content ID and so on, so that it helps with that type of thing in the legitimate case. So that's something that as we move forward, we'll have to sort of track how podcasting sort of goes against those distribution endpoints and figure out ways to actually help people a priori actually you know, register into those, those infrastructures. So you were just talking about a big word there that I think once they hear that might start to scare people, which is royalties, right? Pay for plays and, and usage and stuff like that. But if I'm paying a single license fee for music on songs for podcasters, I'm not really worried about royalties, am I? Or is there a limit that I'm going to hit where 
maybe I have to get a bigger license or, you know, the way I use that music changes. That is that a problem? When you go through the, the process of licensing, uh, some of the things that we ask about are, for instance, what distribution endpoints you're going to put your podcast on and what uh, tier of usage are you? So are you a mainstream podcast or are you a less than 100 downloads per episode per month type, type podcast? And, I, and those things show up in the license that you get, sort of something that says, okay, given a particular volume and tier of usage, this is you know valid, a valid license for, for using it. So it's key to be able to put yourself in the right tier as such. And that's, and that's one of the things we focused on for Salesforce Podcasters is talking in podcast terms about what those tiers are. I mean, this is a great question because I launch a lot of podcasts and at the beginning, obviously, you know, maybe you, you have a huge Twitter following and so you know coming out of the gate, like, yeah, I expect 2,500, 5,000 downloads. But right, for most people, they launch a podcast, they get a hundred, maybe a couple hundred downloads, but then as they put in their time, their consistency, their quality gets better, their show gets better, their audience gets bigger, right? And the next thing you know, a year later, they are getting five, six, 10,000 downloads per episode. And they probably, they probably got that small license. So where did like, how does that person have to think about it or what triggers are in place to make sure that the license can grow with them? A little bit of that is, I mean, it's not too different than renting a house and saying that you have three people and those are the three people on the lease. And then all of a sudden you want to bring in two more. So then you have to go back to your landlord and renegotiate. And so if the scope of use changes during the term of the license, you may have to, if you haven't built in a trigger that says if it goes, you know, if we expand to this number, if our audience gets this big, then the fee will be X. Um, then you just have to go back and say, hey, we, we're using it in a broader way and let's let's address that and adjust the license fee accordingly. And one of the things that we found as we've talked to podcasters is that, you know, that that's that narrative that you just described tends to, to sort of move for the forward looking uh, podcasts they create versus the ones that are archived. And so something to think about now, of course, this is different for, let's say, a theme song. Maybe that theme song is the thing that you have to go back and renegotiate. But the per episode content, et cetera, that tends to be more forward looking than back looking in terms of the, the usage and, and what you have to do on the licenses. I think the idea of using music per episode is a little bit more limited in this scope with most podcasters, right? Like a lot of podcasters, at least in the world that I am familiar with and comfortable with, right? You've got a lot of businesses using podcasts. Uh, you've got a lot of individuals launching, launching podcasts. They're doing interview shows. And so, right, they have it as their built-in production elements. So, right, this is my intro music. I use it, the outro. Maybe I use a transition here or there. And I'm not really thinking about every time I'm launching a new episode, where are my downloads at? What do I need to increase to make sure I'm, I'm on staying compliant? But, right, it's more like I launched with, five listeners, it's a year later, I've got 25,000. And you're still using that theme. It's a little bit of both. Like, so like the last podcast license we saw come through, actually somebody had both things, but it was for a small business. And part of it is that small businesses especially are using it as essentially brand narrative. And so, you know, they may have a, a specific piece that they're thinking, okay, I want something that feels different in this piece because it's a certain part of my brand narrative that I'm telling. And so we see both kinds of usage. And, and I think that's evolving a lot in the context of podcasts, right? Because it's so, in some sense, podcasting is still, you know, in its infancy. And that's a great thing because we can all learn together about how to solve the problems here. So another 
great question and I'm afraid of what the results are going to be, but I'm going to have to ask it anyway. Right. I launch a podcast. I use a track off songs for podcasters. I buy, let's call it a $50 license. Cause that's, what's appropriate for that track. And right. The timing of my show right now, hundred episodes from now, I realize 25,000 downloads, you know, it's time for a little bit of an update, right? Let's, let's refresh the sound. Let's grow the show a little bit. I apply for a new license. I get it. Great. Moving forward. I've got that license. What happens to my back catalog? Do I have to go back and either redo my intro on all those shows? Do I have to go back and then still relicense that track for all the old stuff now that my downloads are, are much higher than where I started? I think that's up to you if you want to for your back catalog. I mean, that the music that you used initially can just be part of that back catalog and your podcasts going forward have this new music that you've licensed. Or if you prefer to go back and remaster those and change the music out, you could do that subject to the scope of your license. Well, right. But I guess my question is, right, does my $50 license that I used for those first 100 episodes still hold up because if I'm getting $25,000, uh, 25,000 downloads on episode 101, there's a good chance that people might be going back into my archive. And now episode 10 has 12,000 downloads, right? That's out. That's a little bit different than what I agreed to. So does my $50 still work or do I have to retroactively change anything? Yeah. And that depends on how that license is written. Um, and whether you put in triggers that allow and enable that growth, um, over the scope of the life of the podcast. And that's something that's really important. You're, you're bringing up a good point, Matthew, to flag for your audience that when you write these licenses or when you're presented with a license, to look at it carefully and to make sure that the terms will um, sustain you over the potential arc of your podcast life. On the sort of traditional media side, there's a concept of sort of archive rights that's sort of around and allows people to say, okay, well, I'm in particular, it's applied with within the context of things that are limited term licenses where they say, okay, well, this campaign, let's say, or this particular thing is active for a certain degree of time, but we want to be able to sort of put it into the back catalog where it's not actively being promoted and used, but we don't want to throw it away as such. Right. And so you can get, you can sort of, you, you can negotiate or develop licenses where the terms support, you know, various kinds of you know, progression. Tell us a little bit more about what the, you know, the benefits of searching for music on songs for podcasters and, you know, what podcasters need to know before diving in headfirst to start trying to find music there. A big part of what we've spent time doing is creating a really unique form, an intuitive form of music discovery. Uh, you know, and the idea actually is that people uh, in your audience should just go straight up to songs for podcasters, say start search searching and descriptive you know, sort of suggestions that we put around it. But ultimately what it's really showing you is that you can interact with the system in a very natural way. That's that's sort of the natural language music search technology that we developed that allows you to say things that are, I'm looking for party style music for, you know, dazzling dance hall, you know, event. And you're going to be able to express, you know, your search, you know, at the level of creative desire for your production and have us take that both the sentiment that you're expressing as well as perhaps references like those artist references for things that maybe aren't as accessible. Hey, I want something that feels this particular way. And we interpret that and bring back interesting results. And so the, our, our hope and our vision is that you, you know, you just come up to it and you start searching that you don't have to think that, Oh, I have to prepare myself in any particular way. Gosh, that would make my life so much easier. 
Uh, the last question I have is because I think many of the people that listen to this show are like me, that we don't just have a podcast, but we manage podcasts for so many others. Is there something that the like agency operators or anything like that should be doing differently as far as who has the license, who pays for the track, or you know, is it kind of a case-by-case basis in your minds? Yeah, that's an interesting question. When they're managing podcasts for others, so are they actually going out and getting, would they be the ones to go and procure the license on behalf of the podcaster? Yeah, because in many cases, right, we're just doing the legwork for them. So we're searching for the music. We're saying like, hey, here's a bunch of tracks that we think work. Which one do you like? And they would say, oh, I really like this one. So in some cases, we'll say, okay, great. Hey, client, go buy this. Send me a copy of the file. We'll take care of it. In other cases, a lot of producers and consultants will say, great, as part of your you know, initial setup, we'll buy the license. We'll take care of it, right? It's built into the cost. And then, you know, we'll, we'll have a copy of it, but just wondering if that raises any red flags or if you think that, you know, is problematic and, and producers and agencies should be thinking about it a little bit differently. Yeah. I think the main thing there is to accurately reflect in the license, that relationship. So if the license is being signed by a manager on behalf of a client that um, you say that and you properly identify the client and, you know, say we have, you know, we're doing this on behalf of so-and-so. You may get questions from the label to clarify, but it's just properly representing the relationship. That, that type of workflow, per se, isn't strange in the context of the traditional media set either. Like there, there are lots of different ways that that happens in film, TV, and advertising in terms of who's doing the searching, who's doing the, the sort of licensing workflow and on behalf of whom, and so on. So I, it's not anything that we haven't seen really in, in that context. You make me very lo- You make me a lot less nervous than now. That's great. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, the website is songs We will have a link to it right here in the show notes for this. You can check out their vast database. It is growing all the time, especially as they announce these new partnerships with music labels, including a bunch that they've just added recently. We have been chatting with Kurt Topeak and Sejan McFarland out there in Seattle, the co-founders of Songs for Podcasters. Thank you so much for joining me here tonight. Mm-hmm.